From the University of Notre Dame, this is With a Side of Knowledge. I'm your host, Ted Fox. The idea behind this show is pretty simple. A university campus is a destination for all kinds of interesting people, representing all kinds of research specialties and fields of expertise. So why not invite some of these folks out to brunch? Yes, I said brunch, where we'll have an informal conversation about their work, and then I'll turn those brunches into a podcast. It's a tough job, but somebody has to do it. With the Side of Knowledge is supported by Soren's Restaurant inside Notre Dame's Morris Inn, which serves breakfast and lunch seven days a week and dinner Tuesday through Saturday. If you see us recording, feel free to stop by and say hi, preferably not when we're chewing. Dan Hinshaw is a professor emeritus of surgery at the University of Michigan and a consultant in palliative medicine at the University of Michigan Geriatric Center. The author or co-author of some 80 papers in peer-reviewed journals and publications, he has also written two books, Touch in the Healing of the World and Suffering in the Nature of Healing, both published by St. Vladimir's Seminary Press. Dan spent the fall 2018 semester in residence at Notre Dame's Institute for Advanced Study, working on a project titled Kenosis and the Mystery of Life. So, of course, I had to ask him to explain what kenosis is in the first place. For the moment, though, all you really need to know is that Dan is interested in how thoughtful engagement with the reality that none of us will live forever has the potential to help us find meaning in our own lives, as well as transform the way we see each other, the aging process, and the delivery of healthcare. And I have to say, he's also really good with metaphors, especially for a doctor. So, Dan Hinshaw, welcome to With a Side of Knowledge. Thank um, you. I realize this first question is going to make me sound like the host of Family Feud, but I, this was the best way I could think to phrase it. If I were to ask 100 people on the street to name one thing that all people all around the world have in common, or even just all Americans have in common, I think the number one response I would get would be a blank stare, as in, okay, no one has everything in common. But if I were to ask you that question, what is the one thing that all of us have in common? We all will die. <laughs> it's a kind of a, gives you pause. <laughs> right. And maybe that's why they don't want to answer the question. <laughs> so... Anyone who's listening now thinking, okay, well, that was a bummer of a way to start a podcast. We're all going to die. Why do you think each and every one of us sharing in the inevitability of our death and our mortality, why can that be a hopeful thing, not a negative thing necessarily? I think it's helpful sometimes to think in terms of some kind of a metaphor. And, and, and it's, it's really the anchor. That, that holds us, you know, in place in a certain sense, so that we don't sort of fly off in all directions and and not have a uh, a real perspective from which we can live our lives. I think the the way to sometimes think about it is if you live as if you're never going to die, what does what would that look like? And, and in fact, that might be relevant to our actual culture, as opposed to someone who realizes I have a limited time on this earth and how can I best use that time? How, how best can I be a, a, a good steward of, of, of what I've been given? This idea that so many of us have that the idea of talking about, even talking about death is 
something to be avoided, that it's not something that people want to talk about. Is that a relatively recent development kind of compared to the arc of human history? Has that always been typical of cultures or have older cultures embraced that, maybe embrace is the wrong word, but thought about death in different ways than maybe we do now, especially in, in Western society? I think it's certainly gone under, undergone a change in terms of, of the topic. I, there's obviously a lot of material in the popular press around death. It's not uncommon at all to see major newspapers or, or magazines have articles or, or even in the non-print media to have interviews about it. There have been a number of recent books. But in some sense, it's also kind of a taboo subject. And I think I could say it one way, and this is probably true maybe across cultures, even across time. Things that we fear, if we even name it, sometimes that makes it real. And so if we avoid talking about it, then maybe it's something that will... Yes, we can say, okay, we can talk about it in the abstract. We can talk about it, about that person over there. Yes, they, they certainly are going to die. Not me right <laughs> Not now. Not me right but, now, right. But, but, but them, yes. They, they, in fact, they, maybe they look like they're going to die sometime soon. Uh, and I think the other problem that is somewhat unique in the last 150 years is we have had the incredible opportunity through the increasing sophistication of, of news media, of the use of photography, uh, and now in terms of the live images of seeing death up close in some ways, and almost, in, and almost in, as a voyeur. I mean, it, it, and, and so it's, it's so overwhelming that, that uh, the response is sometimes to have almost a cartoonish or caricature view of, of, of death. And, and so we have in a, a very bizarre phenomenon that's developed in the in recent times is death as, as entertainment. So so we, we, we try to laugh at death in the face and, and, and mock it by having you know, vampire programs or, or zombies or uh, other very strange kinds of things in, in the media. But all of it along that line and, and, and another, another line I'm going to mention in just a minute all reflects a sense of, of fear of something that we don't have any control over. And, and, in, and in our Western culture, uh, we are very much focused on an individualistic worldview that exalts human autonomy, even within the founding documents that, that are almost a kind of a sacred literature in the, in the secular religion of, of, of America. We have enshrined this right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, it's hard for most people to conceive of the pursuit of happiness, including death. And, 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 and the pursuit of happiness, in, in more stark terms, is a material happiness. It's, it's either physical or, or financial or you know, a whole host of uh, aspects of well-being that translate into owning things or, or, or property rights and so on. And, and what happens when you die? You lose all of that. You, you come ultimately to face uh, your ultimate poverty before the universe. And this is something that the ancients, you know, even in the pre-Christian, you know, the Stoics and so on, 
it emphasized that, that we need to contemplate our death to mature as human beings. But I think there's an increasing fear in the sense that we have all these things that we, we are called upon in our culture to get, to, to possess. You know, even, even, even the joke or the movie imagery of having a bucket list. It's like, well, we've got to get all these things done before we mm-hmm. kick the bucket. So it's again, it's a, it's a, a humorous twist, but it's also this fear of, of chasing after specific uh, sensual experience or, or things, again, that relate to our physical being without really developing the inner being, mm-hmm. the, the inner person. And, and, and so, and this is spread across not just how we relate to ourselves, our, our neighbor, but also in terms of how we deal with the fact of aging and, and how we will inevitably at some point face illness in ourselves and in, our, and in people, those, you know, those whom we love. You mentioned something there a minute ago that I think is the, the perfect bridge into talking about your project at Notre Dame, at the Notre Dame Institute for Advanced Studies specifically. You talked about dying and kind of this idea of ultimate poverty before the universe because you can't take it with you when it's time to go. The, the title of your project that you're working on is Kenosis and the Mystery of Life. And I'm wondering if you could tell us first, what is kenosis? What does that mean in the Christian tradition? So I just, I've been sort of captivated by this theological concept that, that comes from a Greek word. And kenosis can be translated in a number of ways, but it, it, it means depletion or emptying or stripping away. It can also, of course, mean impoverishment. You know, so even in the you know even in the gospel account, uh, we, we usually think when we about the beatitudes that are in Matthew's gospel. But if you look at Luke's gospel, there's an account of the Sermon on the Plain, and there Christ says, "Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God." And he doesn't make a qualification about poor in the spirit. In spirit, he just says in general, and and so I think that that's helpful to place kenosis in that context that on a very physical level kenosis can speak to the fact that we age that we can't do what we might have done 10 years ago as we as we get older and so we have all these small deaths you know of who we were after we've achieved kind of maturity but it affects us not just on the physical level it affects us also on the psychological our, and the social, our social relationships can be kenotic. And, and, and in the largest sense, those social relationships extend to the planet, you know, to, to, to our environment, not just to other human beings, but the entire, the entire cosmos that we know. And then finally, uh, the kenosis is ultimately a spiritual one. And, and I mean by spiritual, for those who might not be particularly religious or le- listening to this, I'm speaking not only the religious context, but I'm speaking to the sense that we are all unique as human beings in the sense that we search for meaning. We, we try to find meaning in, in, in the world around us and in our own lives. And, and of course, if, if we're going through this process of decline that continually reminds us of our mortal finite condition, how do we, how do we deal with that at this most existential level? What in your background as a physician, or what have you seen as a physician in the course of your career that made you want to explore a topic like this? My original training was in surgery. I practiced surgery and enjoyed doing that for many years. 
but I also was given uh, the opportunity to participate in, in various kinds of medical administrative tasks. And sort of in mid-career, I was the chief of the uh, clinical affairs or programs at, at, at my hospital that I worked at. And I realized, I remember at the time thinking, I've been so focused in my, both in my training and in my practice about fixing things. And this is sort of the model of, of modern medicine. We have amazing kinds of technological innovations and, and, and skills that, that, that can be taught and learned to address individual human diseases and so on. But we've tended to neglect the person who has those diseases, you know, or the, or the, or the persons who, have, who suffer with it. And, and, and so the issue of suffering became a concern that was paramount in my mind and I was trying to think of how can, how can I redress that imbalance. And, and of course the other part of this that has become really striking is that we've, our, our civilization has reached an inflection point. We've never in the history of the planet reached a point where even for the developing world, like in sub-Saharan Africa, where the most common cause of mortality is now the non-communicable diseases of aging, not, not, not malaria, not an infectious disease, not massive epidemics, which have been the dominant kind of uh, pattern up till now. And so the majority of people, they may not all live to, to 90 years old, right. but they're going to live longer lives unless they die act, you know, from an accident or trauma or, or war. Most people will, will live long enough to experience this kenotic, uh, the physical aspect of the kenosis, which then spills over into these other domains. Mm-hmm. In the, the presentation of yours that I listened to, you talked about your background um, in the Eastern Orthodox Church and the, the role of metaphor that, that often plays in terms of the faith, in terms of then how you think about things. And you used a metaphor of kenosis to explain cancer biology in a way that was probably the closest I've ever felt of like, okay, I kind of understand what's going on here, but you talked about, in some sense, it's almost like a rebellion at the cellular level by the cancer cell. I wonder if you could unpack that here a little bit, because I thought it was a really interesting way to think about, again, from a metaphorical sense, what's going on in the body with, with cancer cells. Yeah, it's a fascinating thing. I, for uh, a major part of my career, I also uh, did bench research, and, and my area, ironically, my area of, of basic research interest was cell death. <laughs> so I kind of expanded it, I guess, to a macroscopic level in terms of thinking about our uh, kenosis. But what I would like to say about cancer is, is, is it needs to be bracketed by also commenting about what normally happens. Mm-hmm. So we have many, many different cell types in our body that form up the tissue, that form the tissues that we think of in terms of our esophagus or, or the, you know, the entire gastrointestinal tract, for example, has uh, an epithelial lining of cells that, that basically go through a maturation process and they migrate to, toward the, uh, the upper end of, of the epithelial lining. And through that process, they go through what's called terminal differentiation. And just what that means is that they, they mature to a point where they, they are now fully defined and they're following their own kinetic pathway individually, these individual right. cells that, you know, that, that, that are, are a small component of, of, of our entire being. I mean, if you think about it, 
parenthetically that the human beings, each human being is like a small universe. I mean, we're a small microcosm. Microcosmos would be the Greek word. And so what happens when these cells normally do this is they may live for a few days and then they go, they, they execute what's called a, a, a program for cell death. Or, and they, the Greek word that's been coined is apoptosis. And all that apoptosis to, uh, means is it's, it's, a, it's kind of a beautiful kind of poetic uh, meaning. It, it, it's to create the sense of, of leaves that, that are falling. You know, we're, we're here now in, in autumn. It's like leaves falling from a tree. Mm-hmm. And, and so what happens is the cells break up, they fragment and, and as they're dying, and, and they break up into these smaller fragments. And, and the cell and the cell fragments of the dying cells actually express molecules on their surface that basically make them attractive to adjacent cells, and then they're engulfed, in, and, and they actually end up nourishing other cells in their environment. So you have this self-giving kind of, almost kind of a Eucharistic image of, of healthy cells doing yeah. this. And in cancer... Right. Pause it, we'll order real quick. While we place our orders, a little bit more about Dan. His research has been supported by grants from the Department of Veterans Affairs and the Department of Defense. And he has provided voluntary educational and clinical services in hospice and palliative medicine programs in Uganda, Ethiopia, Romania, Serbia, and Lebanon. He also serves on the executive committee of the American College of Surgeons Committee on Surgical Palliative Care. And didn't I tell you he knows his way around a metaphor? Hey, can I get some cream? We need. Oh, it was right there. I missed it the Sorry, entire time. No, I missed it the entire time. <laughs> all right, gentlemen, shouldn't be too long at all. Thank you very much. So we were talking about kind of the natural, oh, yeah, the regularly animals. scheduled cell death and the cells, in almost a sense, going back to their community. They're nourishing these other cells when they're breaking down. In cancer, that's not what happens. So there's this sort of collective support, you know, mutual right. support. And with cancer, I mean, and I, I'm so oversimplifying clearly, but, but with cancer, there are really kind of two different ways of uh, some cancer cells or, or cells that are becoming cancer uh, go through a process of, of losing restraints on their growth. But usually accompanying that is, is the, they also become refractory to signals for them to die. They're no longer willing to die for their nation, <laughs> for, the, for the whole community. <laughs> right. They want to live in a very selfish way. Yeah. And so in that sense, the, the image that, that again, from, a, from an Orthodox, or from a traditional Christian perspective, needs to be true with Catholicism too, that, that once you allow the passions to kind of dominate your life, you, 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 it's all about me, you know. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm not willing to share, I'm not willing to even consider the needs of another in my quest for for this sort of morbid form of eternal life. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in this life, cancer is really immortality, mm-hmm. if you want to think about it. I mean, there, there's one cell line that, that maybe the listeners would be familiar with, the story of Henrietta Lacks. There's mm-hmm. been a very popular book and a, and a movie about her. She, of course, never benefited from it, and neither did her family financially, but, but, the, but the world of biomedical research has benefited in enormous ways, and so hopefully other people have benefited from the HeLa cells, which are, which are the, 
uh, were named for the first two letters of her first and last name, and they were from a cervical cancer that they were able to, and, and they've been growing in perpetuity as long as you feed them, right? And uh, and and so it's a sort of horror horrific kind of form of immortality that the cancer makes possible mm -hmm. but it, it's as a it's as a parasite and mm -hmm. of course cancer eventually will kill its host because mm -hmm. it has no sense of again of community or right. of trying to live in in any kind of non-selfish way mm -hmm. so then extending that metaphor even further and you were alluding to it there too i i think it's interesting because it can shed light on kind of us as human beings if we aren't if we're not willing to come to grips and have a, a full reckoning of our own mortality that theoretically then that's lead, can lead us to more isolation as we're aging or I, I guess I don't know all the all the kinds of consequences but it seems like it would have a lot of not just physical consequences but social and psychological questions both for the person who is aging and for the family members and the friends and everything around them. Well, and think about, multiply that. If, if, if all of us have sort of, to some extent, bought into this kind of worldview, where would it go in terms of, the, of, of society? Mm -hmm. It's not too dissimilar from the kind of hyper-polarization we have politically, around moral questions. Mm -hmm. we, we can't find any kind of common ground you know, to, to, to actually say this other person is, is, is a person like me. And yet we do have that common ground, and that's the kenosis, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, and, and the reality of our finitude, of our mortal condition. We should be able to look across the table at someone who vehemently disagrees with us on some political issue and still say, you know, we're, we have common cause here. We're, we're, we're both going to be facing the same problems. Right. And is there some place where we can meet together in, in recognition of that rather than indulge in just this uh, almost, it, it's almost become a, uh, a form of pleasure to express moral outrage. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and how can, how can that be you know, consistent even with the, with the psalmist who says, be angry and do not sin? <laughs> well, we just want to be angry. <laughs> right. And so we're right. like those cancer cells in a, in a certain sense. You know, yeah. we, we're just consumed by by the need to have stuff, to accumulate stuff. And, and, and uh, you know, it's interesting that there have been some recent studies, because uh, in, my, in my work in, in palliative medicine, one of, one of my clinical concerns was, of course, was to try to relieve cancer-related pain. Some of the most painful cancers that's been established now actually produce proteins on their surface that induce pain mm -hmm. in, in their, as they invade uh, a territory. I mean, this is how evil... Right. Answer is and it really it really is an evil thing. That's where the metaphor ends, and you know, it's it's <laughs> right. It's truly horrible. Right. I know for you that this isn't just about individuals and you know the potential for social, psychological, spiritual gains as we go through this long process towards the end of life. Is those are important and valuable things, but there's also broader societal concerns here and, and you talked about it a little uh, there were a few stats that you used in your presentation one that really stood out to me about just kind of where our healthcare system is headed was it was from the United Nations it was in 1950 there were 12 potential workers to support each elderly person over 65 in 2009 there were 9 by 2050 they projected there will only be 4 people to support those folks and so I'm wondering 
you know, how do you think a better understanding of our own kenosis as people, a better understanding that death isn't, for most of us, isn't going to just be this sudden thing that just happens to us one day. It's a long process of this self-emptying and gradual decline of different capabilities. How could coming to grips with that impact either our healthcare system or how we fund medical research? What That kind of sensibility, what would that look like if it were impacting the way we think about how we set up our systems to try and take care of ourselves? Well, this is the amazing thing that seems to be lost in all of the uh, intense marketing that's associated with, with the modern healthcare system. And that is that the, the, the things that made it possible, the interventions that made it possible for people to now be dying of these diseases of aging were relatively simple interventions. You know, good sewage systems, clean water, immunization programs. A lot of the fruits of that, those benefits, those have been, we've been harvesting them collectively as human beings, and that's why even in the developing countries, because to the extent that they are now offering those kinds of basic services and, and meeting those needs, everyone's living longer. Mm-hmm. What I think isn't appreciated is that that the kinds of sophisticated and, and dramatic new approaches, that, you know, the precision medicine, the personalized medicine, you see, you know, ask your doctor, you'll see these advertisements right. on television. They're for very expensive treatments, quite often that are going to have marginal benefit for a few people. They may help people, uh, those who are res- responsive to the treatments, and they're, and they're very interesting treatments. I mean, so from a medical research standpoint, they're fascinating, mm-hmm. and, 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 they, and, they, and you certainly learn more, again, on the margins of, of medicine, medical, biomedical science, from developing these things. But it's, I have to almost use a uh, pagan mythic uh, metaphor. If, if people remember the story of Hercules and the Hydra, the Hydra was this monster that every time Hercules would chop one of its heads off, three heads would sprout out of the neck where the previous head had been. And he kept having this, because he had to really deal with the Hydra, the, the, the beast itself, not the heads. Mm-hmm. And that's the situation I think what we're dealing with is that most of the of the research budget from the federal sources like the National Institutes of Health are most most of those research projects that are funded they're they're they're, they're attacking the heads mm-hmm. they're not attacking you know, and 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 from my conversations with colleagues who are working in the basic uh, science of, of aging itself they're saying well I think there's some things that could you know, that could be done to maybe extend life or extend healthy life certainly in animal and, and, and you know smaller animal models that will still reach a limit. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know of any serious I mean you know serious biologists that I've talked to or, or from my own reading of the literature and from my past work that would would you know posit that they can keep people uh, you know looking like they're 35 years old or something indefinitely. That right. that is ridiculous basically. Right. And 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 when people push those kinds of concepts, they're doing the public a real disservice because, uh, and, and, and of course what happens is spills over in medicine because we have a, a medical system that is based using free market principles 
to commodify healthcare. And it's certainly important to give people good service. So some, some of the things we can learn from the business model are very appropriate. But you can't compare selling fine automobiles to healthcare. It, it doesn't work. As we continue to take on these diseases of aging, we're going to have more and more expensive treatments that are going to only extend life for shorter periods of time. And, and it's going to mean in a global economy that someone else is not going to get any kind of care. Mm-hmm. So that I can, I have to live another six months. Right. Well, why? Why do I have to live another six months? Why haven't I been thinking about my my life and what and what I'm trying to make of my life from the very beginning? Mm-hmm. And so this this is the problem. And, and it, it's it's been very very sad for me because I've cared for people across the age spectrum to see somebody young in their twenties who I, I admire their 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 resolve. You know, God has been good to me. I, I I've been blessed with, with the, it's a short life, unfortunately, but I accept that and, 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 I, and I'm living it to its fullest extent I can. And then see people, you know, someone who's 85 years old demanding that I do, you know, do everything you can to keep me alive. I, I can't die yet. I can't right. die. This isn't fair. Right. And this is, this is what's ailing our society. And, I, and so I think, I think we would, if, if we answered the question, if, if collectively, as, as a society, we acknowledge you know our finite nature it should have an impact on how we use our resources Mm -hmm. Uh, you know it's interesting that there was a Nobel Prize given in physics a number of years ago for the discovery that not only is the universe expanding but it's the rate of expansion is accelerating that's got somehow in the back back of the human psyche that well resources are infinite that's not doesn't apply to the planet here right our resources are not infinite, and we're, we're, we're also not fulfilling our responsibility in terms of, of being good stewards of, of the creation that we, you know, we, we, we abuse it. Mm-hmm. So it also applies, I think, you know, these concepts apply, of course, also to the whole debate about climate change and so forth. I, I think one has to have an open mind. I mean, there have been clim- major climactic changes in the history of the of the world prior to the industrial revolution, I mean earlier uh, geologic ages, where, where, where there, were, there were catastrophic changes, could we be coming up against something like that? Maybe so. But you know, we we are sentient beings, and we should take some responsibility for the things that we do ourselves. Right. And we we we, we know we damage this home of ours. We only have one home. I'll just ask you one uh, one last thing so we can so we can eat because our food is here and it looks delicious. Stuffed French toast. Great. We both got it. Looks very good. Yeah. Um, Kenosis and the Mystery of Life, the project you're working on here is a book project. And we talked about this a little bit before we started recording. What do you hope, ideally when it's done, what do you hope that book will be? I hope the book will be a, a catalyst for a, for a real breaking down some of these enormous barriers that human beings have set up, you know, between factions, whether the factions are in, in the culture wars, whether they relate to political factions, and, and where we can set that aside 
and actually have serious discourse and dialogue about who we are. We're finite animals who are aware of our mortality and take on some of the major problems in a realistic way. I don't think I don't think we're I think we're at a point where we're not going to solve some of these problems even with the if if the worst case scenarios uh, regarding the climate uh, come to pass I think I think what we need to be focusing on is trying to mitigate the, the, the catastrophe as best we can for our fellow human beings who are going to suffer we know where a lot of them are going to suffer you know there will probably be a famine. We know there will be a lot of damage to coastal areas. And, and so we need to start thinking about contingency plans about that. And I think the other thing is that, that we need to look within ourselves. I mean, this is in every other crisis in ancient times. You know, if you look at the biblical story, for example, of Nineveh, you know, most people get focused on Jonah and the whale, but <laughs> when he finally went to Nineveh, the, the extraordinary thing is this large city by ancient standards, 120,000 people, they all repented. And we know from, you know, even, even scientific studies now of meditation, you know, which is really a type of prayer, that this changes the way people behave and think. They cal- it calms them down. It's an enormously useful treatment, for example, for post-traumatic stress disorder. Well, we're all sort of hyped up to this point of, of wanting to be at dagger's edge, a point with each other. We need to step back. And we need to have some period where we where we where we engage in this type of serious form of prayer and, mm-hmm. and reflection before we jump on our horse and ride off in all directions, which is the temptation. It certainly is. <laughs> Dan Hinshaw, this has been great. Thank you very much. You've, it was a great conversation. You've certainly earned the French toast. So Thank I, you. I, I Thank hope you, you enjoy it. With a Side of Knowledge is a production of the Office of the Provost at the University of Notre Dame with support from Soren's Restaurant. Our website is provost.nd.edu slash podcast.